Hello and welcome to Land Unlocked, a collaboration from the Food Farming and Countryside Commission and the Farmgate Podcast. I'm Finlow Castain, the Chief Executive of Farmwell, and in this series I'm talking about land use with influential figures in the UK and around the world in the run-up to COP26 in Glasgow this November. Land is all too often the silent partner in climate change discussions, and yet the way we manage land and produce and supply food holds the key to unlocking lasting solutions not only to global warming, but also to biodiversity restoration and the fair distribution of good quality, diverse and nutritious meals. In this programme, I'm thrilled to be joined by two truly exceptional people. Christiana Figueres is an internationally recognised leader on global climate change. She was Executive Secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change from 2010 to 2016, the force behind the Paris Agreement. Today, she is the co-founder founder of Global Optimism and co-host of the podcast Outrage and Optimism. Her new book is called The Future We Choose, Surviving the Climate Crisis, which she co-authored with Tom Rivett Karnak. Professor Tim Jackson is an ecological economist, a writer, and he's a commissioner for the Food, Farming and Countryside Commission. Since 2016, Tim has been director of the Centre for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity at the University of Surrey. And between 2004 and 2011, Tim was economics Commissioner for the UK Sustainable Development Commission, where his work culminated in the groundbreaking book Prosperity Without Growth. Not only that, but he's also written a plethora of award-winning plays for BBC Radio. Welcome both. Hello, Finlay. Well, it's wonderful to be here today with you and with Tim, who I can't believe it, but we haven't met, so this is the first time. It's really strange, isn't it? And Finlay, you should probably mention that we're both have the honour of being Hillary laureates, which is um, um, awarded by the Hillary Institute in New Zealand in memory of Edmund Hillary. And um, Christiana is the latest Hillary laureate, I think. And Fantastic. I was Hilly- Hillary laureate um, five years ago. So it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Wonderful. Well, as I say, welcome to you both. Christiana, I'd like to come to you first, if I may. The Paris Agreement of 2015 is hailed as a global breakthrough in our united struggle to avert the climate crisis. You led that process as Executive Secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Six years on, looking back, was it the tipping point you hoped for? Well, I'm afraid uh, that on something as complex uh, as climate change, there is no one tipping point that is actually going to be any sort of magical solution. I think it is the compounded effect of uh, several tipping points. And I think we're seeing those compounded effects. Now, the agreement definitely was the start of a very new approach to the evolution of the global economy. And I have not, not that it's my term, but I have now seen several analysis out there calling on the Paris effect. Why the Paris effect? Because since the agreement, which clearly points out and marks out the decarbonization rate and scale that needs to occur around the world in order to keep us safe. Since then, we have seen so much progress, not enough, let me underline that three times, but we have seen quite a bit of progress on renewable energy generation, certainly on finance. And I don't know if you want to talk about that, but 
uh, quite a shift in where financing is going, quite a shift in where uh, fossil fuels are going, and quite a shift in where global transport is going. So all of those areas actually really being benefited by the Paris effect and into what is uh, increasingly being recognized as exponential transformations. Big exception here, land use. Big exception. That is the Cinderella at this party because we haven't focused enough on that. And I'm sure we want to uh, go deeper into that issue here. Absolutely. And and of course, land use, you know, there's complexities in there, a much less linear um, challenge, perhaps, than transport and energy. But we'll come to that, as you say, in just a moment. And I'm interested in the way that, you know, looking at the news, I've seen so many new commitments and new pledges in the run up to uh, Glasgow in November. Was it like that? around the Paris Agreement? Was there this sort of year or six months when nations were starting to vie together to see who could pledge the most? Yes, absolutely. That is actually what is prescribed in the Paris Agreement, that every five years, countries will take a look at what they have done on decarbonizing, how much more they can do because of newly available technologies, how much more they can do because of financial shifts and policy effect, and then come up with their new ambition levels. So what we're seeing now is basically a repeat performance, hopefully an improved performance of what we saw in the 12 months leading up to the Paris Agreement, where all countries came in to register the first tranche of their emission reduction commitments. And now we're seeing them coming forward with the second tranche of their emission reduction commitments as prescribed by Paris. This will happen every five years. This time it's a little bit strange. It's a six year period because of COVID, but we will see this happen every five years. Now we're going to come on to land use, but at the same time, before we do that, I want to think about the story of change. And both of you have really interesting experiences in this area. Christiana, you recently founded Global Optimism. Optimism is a fantastic word. And and so often in terms of climate change and other global crises that we face, optimism seems to be in short supply. And you've characterised optimism not as a sunny day attitude, but as a gritty and relentless pursuit. What makes you optimistic? My choice. <laughs> it's because we have to choose. Either we give in to the doom and gloom and the helplessness and, you know, uh, disappear into a dark room on the couch and cry and be miserable and despair forever. Or we recognize the destruction that we have wrought on this planet. And because of that, we stand up tall and strong and say, because we have wrought the destruction. That is why we now have the responsibility and actually we have the ingenuity and the capital and the technology to do something about it and to be able to address climate change in a timely fashion. So it's a choice. Do you want to give in to helplessness or do you actually want to be much more optimistic in the sense of rallying everything you can to be part of the solution? It's a simple choice. Are you part of the problem or do you want to be part of the solution? And that is a choice, Finlow, that I think we have to make every single day. Tim, do you see yourself as an optimistic person? 
Yeah, I'd kind of go, I'd go along with that. It reminds me of um, Italian philosopher Gramsci, who, who talks about pessimism of the intellect, but optimism of the will. And I think that's right. You know, we can, we can think of all the bad things that there are with the planet, with the situation, with what we've done to the planet, with the inequality that exists. We can, we can worry about that and we can, and we should take responsibility for it. But actually, as, as Christiana says, the, the choice to optimism is always there and it's a profoundly human quality. And it's one I think that matters to us in this situation. You know, we're in, the, if you like, we're in the kind of final stages of a football match and we're kind of trailing a goal. And if we're the team that gives up at that point because we're too pessimistic, we've already seen the outcome, then sure enough, we're going to lose. But we do, even in those circumstances, kind of have a choice um, to try until the whistle blows. And I think, I think that's what we should be doing. In a sense, See, people often think of, of optimism and hope as being the antidote to despair. But I think actually the antidote to despair is action. And action is always possible. And that, as Christiana says, is a choice that we can all make. So optimism is part of the story. But in just, you know, sort of thinking a bit more about your background, you're, you're a true descendant of the Renaissance here, a, a thinker, professor, a writer in the field of ecological economics, but also a prolific playwright. And it's that last that I want to come to first here. As human beings, we were storytellers long before we invented the wheel. Stories help us, you know, as we've just been discussing, to make sense of the world. And I wonder how important narrative is in addressing the crises that we face today in nature. I think it is important. It's stories that connect people. It's stories that people can relate to. It's stories that, that make us see how the world is working and don't speak just to fact, but to relationship and to meaning. And I think, you know, we, in a sense, we've kind of given in to a very simple story that also turns out, as it happens, to be completely wrong, which is that the human species is kind of is a greedy, selfish, hedonistic species that is only cruel to each other and wants only to pursue its own ends to whatever destructive final conclusion that may lead. And we've also been sold a story that that's a good thing, that that's what keeps us working together. That's what keeps capitalism going. That's what makes us, you know, that competition, that competitive element within us is the thing that produces social good in society. And it's a really, it's a really interesting story because it's one that you don't really find in the wisdom traditions, in religion. You don't really find it in poetry or literature. You don't find it in sociology or psychology. You don't even find it if you ask people on the streets at the end of the day. The place you find it and where we're absolutely convinced about it is in economics. And it's that kind of, it's that story in a sense that's taken over our possibilities and usurped our sense of what it means to live well and to be well and to be fully flourishing human beings. And it's wrong. So, so yes, the idea of telling a different story, a story more grounded in reality, a story that offers us the choices that Christiana was talking about, that's something worth telling. And it's always seemed to me that with well, economics... I'm sorry, can I, yeah. can I just come in to underline something really interesting um, that Tim has mentioned? I'm an anthropologist by training, and so oral history has always been a fascination to me because we see so many different cultures and societies that over time have relied on oral history in order to maintain their sense of identity and their sense of the future. And we tend to think rather erroneously that oral history was a tool that was used in the past by some societies. The fact is, we are constantly using oral history. What we're doing here right now is oral history. 
It is a very compelling determinant of how we think about ourselves, who we are, how we turn up in the world, what do we believe in, what do we believe we are capable of. It is transmitted to us by those with whom we speak or transmitted to those with whom we are in conversation and in conversation writ large, right? This is a conversation. The conversations we have every day, the conversations that we have through many of our media channels. And so when the message, the bottom line message of all of those stories, all of those conversations is the one that Tim has said that we're actually at best we are egotistical, short-sighted, uh, you know, non-empathetic humans, and that that's the world that we inhabit, and hence the world that we're going to continue to create. Well, it is then a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that's why it's so important to be aware of those stories that we tell, but that start in our mind. What are the stories that we have in our mind about ourselves and about each other? Because those are the stories that we will then tell, that we will communicate, and those are the stories that we will turn into reality. So truly standing up to our better selves and to our capacity to be effective agents of change is very important. And how important is narrative in the diplomatic process? Because I think from the outside, it can seem quite technocratic and remote. But of course, diplomats and politicians, they're human beings the same as anybody else. When you're trying to... (laughs) Well, I hope so. When you're trying to corral these people towards a common objective, how important is that story? Are you having trade-offs between one another? Are you trying to sell a story to them? Yes, but there's a mega story there that is an, that acts as an organizing principle. And the mega story that helped us to organize or to weave together the countless different threads that came together in the Paris papistry, the mega story there was what kind of a future do we want to experience? And that was my conversation with almost 195 governments of the world is, so tell me, what do you want for your people 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now? And the fascinating thing is that when you put your focus at that time scale, then Everybody, of course, is going to tell you what I want is a prosperous economy that allows everyone to participate, that allows and ensures that everyone is healthy, that everyone has a safe livelihood. And that's a mega story that is shared by everyone who is a member of the human race. So once you have that mega story established, then you walk that back and you say, okay, so what does that look like for country X, country Y, country W? And then you begin to weave those threads together. But it all obeys a bigger long-term mega story that everyone has actually coincided on. Do you think, Christiana, that's why 1.5 happened in Paris? Because in some sense, 1.5 was a, a minor character, a kind of walk-on role for a bit part. It wasn't a major protagonist as you were going into Paris and yet turned out to be a kind of, you know, this character who walked on 
became the main story in some sense is the big story coming out of Paris because it aligned with that that mega narrative that you're talking about well it aligned over time Tim right and as you say 1.5 as a maximum temperature rise uh, was sort of um, smuggled into the text almost uh, in the in the last minute and was definitely done on the impulse of the low-lying island states mm -hmm. who knew that unless we keep to that a maximum temperature rise that their survival was in severe danger but countries weren't ready to accept that as a final outcome as a final ceiling of temperature so that's why in uh, negotiations you always uh, try to find middle of the ground text and that middle of the ground ended up being well below two or striving mm -hmm. for 1.5 since then as you say science has advanced and we now know that there's actually a huge difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees. We didn't know that back in 2015. And so, you know, kudos to every single country who really insisted on that 1.5. They have been proven right. This is fascinating. I could talk for an entire hour on this, but let's move on to land use for the rest of our time. Now, Tim, your books, Prosperity Without Growth, and more recently, Post Growth, contend that our economic model is broken. It's incapable of delivering us from the climate emergency. Now, I want to challenge that just a little, at least in terms of food and agriculture. Surely growth is necessary, but it needs to be redefined away from uh, the corporate profit-led model where a small number of people get extremely rich and towards a stronger, more vibrant countryside where there are new farm and food businesses supporting a more resilient but growing rural economy in which power has shifted from the city and back towards the fields. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting challenge, Fenlo, because in a sense you've used the word growth in three very distinct ways there. Um, and and <laughs> in the most obvious way agriculture is about growth it's about growing food and nature knows a lot about growth growth is you know an incredibly important part of the resilience of nature and the cycles of nature and and what's interesting with it about it though is that it's also you know that kind of growth is aligned with decay it is aligned with cycles it's it's and the decay becomes the part of the growth in the next cycle it's a regenerative process and that regenerative process actually is a process that agriculture kind of knows very well and knows what the limits of it are very well but it's also a process that's gone wrong you know it's gone wrong in the sense that in pursuit of growth at the economic level this this almost overriding drive towards productivity we put all kinds of chemicals on the land and fertilizers on the land it's a very energy intensive process and that has had the perverse impacts actually of propping up productivity over the short term and undermining it in the long term so that the quality of soils actually not least their inability to absorb carbon in the way that they that we would like them to be able to do but even worse perhaps their inability to produce that same source of food on which we're going to rely on the future indefinitely because the farming models the agricultural models have been pushed and pushed and pushed by this idea of relentless productivity growth serving actually not farmers not land workers not agriculture itself and not even really sustainable food but serving the interests of the people who are kind of extracting value out of the land in the form of, of profits for a minority of people. So, so it's that, that's the critique, I think, that would come out of prosperity 
community without growth. Not that we don't want a thriving rural community. Of course we do. And, you know, for goodness sake, those communities have suffered for decades. So there's very definitely a role for increasing their prosperity, but also aligning that increase in prosperity with the growth that happens through the cycles of nature in a regenerative agriculture. So it's a redistribution to an extent of wealth, but certainly of power. Yes, it is. I mean, you know, the question about about narrative that we were talking about before is a very interesting one. Who controls the narrative is a question ultimately of power, which is exactly why it's important to go back to narrative and to change the narrative and put different narratives on the table. And then the narrative of a regenerative nature puts different people actually in power you know and and it was a lesson from the pandemic as well you know when things went down it wasn't the financial analysts on wall street that saved our lives it was the farmers and the nurses and the doctors and they were the people who had been in the lowest ranks of power in many ways in society because of the story the narrative that we told about what prosperity is and so you know kind of shifting that around changing that balance does mean actually giving power to people who have not had it in the past, whose stories have been excluded from the mainstream narrative and who are actually the most valuable people in society. Governments are notoriously, power hungry isn't quite the right phrase, but they like to retain power at the centre and devolving power back to individual people. It's very difficult for governments. Do you think they've grown up enough to do that in the time we have available? I actually have a, a much more optimistic view of government and what government is. We have aligned our governments with kind of capitalistic power. We've allowed lobbying into politics in a way that's undermined the role of democracy and, and government and the state itself. But actually, I don't think that's where government government came from. It's not where democracy came from. It's not what democracy means. It's actually um, much more aligned with a role that looks after the most vulnerable in society, that distributes power fairly and equally, that supports those on livelihoods which might otherwise be skewed or, or even corrupted by the influences of big power. And it allows for the conditions under which that distribution can happen. And I believe that is a, you know, that view of government to me goes all the way back to the people who were the architects of democracy in the philosophy of the of the 16th, 17th, 18th century. Um, and the idea of a social contract is exactly what gives government the legitimacy to create the conditions so that the poorest and the most vulnerable, including those who work on the land, have themselves decent livelihoods. Christiana, I wonder if you could reflect on that. But at the same time, I want to draw you back to the very beginning of this podcast where we were talking about processes around climate change and you said, yes, land use was missing. And I wonder why you think that is. I think it's so for um, for several reasons. First, because it is so much more difficult to get your head around uh, land use. It is 30% of the problem, 30% of emissions come from land use, 70 from the energy side. And if it's 30% of the problem, then it ought to be 30% of the solution. But typically, it is a much more distributed sector where the decisions on land use, on agriculture, uh, on forestry are so much more decentralized than they are in the energy side, where you have basically a handful of very large energy companies 
who, if they decide to do the right thing, they could actually make a huge difference. Land use is very, very different. And it goes all the way from some agricultural companies that are large, but actually to millions and millions of small landowners who have been using the land in the same completely unsustainable and inefficient way for years. And especially when you look at food output, it is just so inefficient what we're doing because when you see how much of the land area in the UK, 48% of all UK land is given over to animal agriculture, basically the same as over the whole world. One half of our land area is given over to animal agriculture. It's taking up one quarter of our irrigation water. It's emitting 15% of our greenhouse gas emissions. And it's not really giving us an efficient move from the protein that is in the food that these animals use to the protein that we consume. So I really want to make a huge shout out here for plant-based diets because we have to move toward that. Yes, because of climate change, but also just because of efficiency. It is the most inefficient way to produce protein is to have, you know, these animals that should be with us for other reasons other than for us to eat them. Every single piece of beef that you have on your plate has lost 97% of the protein contained in the plants that were eaten by that animal. Pork loses 90%, chicken 80%. It is just such a waste. And frankly, we are at such a point in breaking through planetary boundaries that we cannot afford to be inefficient. We can't afford to be inefficient about energy. We can't afford to be inefficient about food. We can't afford to be inefficient about water. We have to be able to be minutiously efficient and circular because we every single resource that we have, we have to get one, two, three, four, five times the use out of that resource. So it is time to include land use and everything that that means, reforestation, protecting of uh, standing land, uh, lands, move over toward agroecology, move over to plant-based diets. It is a huge family of issues. And it's difficult to wrap your heads around it because each one of those subchapters has its own barriers. That's why I think we still haven't moved with the speed that we should on these issues. But surely we're not talking about stopping eating meat and, and dairy products altogether because there's you know so much of the world which is grazing land, rough land, or there are communities in developing countries that are very dependent on the livestock in much drier areas where, where it's more difficult to grow arable crops or, or fruit and vegetables. So it's about getting the mix right, surely, starting from the well, land and working upwards well we're definitely at the wrong side of that extreme right uh definitely on the wrong side of that range because we are just not being efficient at all about the use of land we are extracting from the land without making it regenerative without being able to repurpose and capture back into the soil the richness that it had originally we're just extracting Think of soil as the same way that we extract minerals. That's what we're doing to the soil. We're just extracting, extracting, extracting. Then we use very little of what we extract and then we throw it. Food waste. 
absolutely just discard. We are not even careful about our food waste. We do not, we are not recycling food waste back into the soil so that we can be regenerative about the soil. It is just completely inefficient and irresponsible. One of the ways in which it's most inefficient is actually that a very heavy meat-based diet is not conducive to human health. And, um, you, you know, we know that in the advanced economies, we're on the wrong side of that. We know because the World Health Organization tells us that more people now die from diseases of, of overconsumption and in particular from things like uh, red meat and, and heavy meat based diets. And we know that actually we could be healthier and have a more efficient agricultural system at the same time. I want to come at that question. So we have to think of the two things together, Finlaw, right? We have to think of human health and planetary health. The fact is we're not choosing between the two of them. They are one and the same. Like Tim has just said, it is better for us as humans consuming, much better to move over toward a much more diet-based, a plant-based diet than it is to stay with meat, especially red meat. It's also better for the planet. So if we're going to get double dipping benefit, why not move over to that? I would say that our view at Food Farming and Countryside Commission and Farmwell is we need a complete mindset shift if we are going to solve the climate crisis while at the same time reversing the crisis in biodiversity. When we talk about high quality nutrition and feeding people well and then talk about nature, nature gets split down. There are different conflicting sort of issues. And, and I think you've touched on this already, but I still want to ask you quite directly about what the future of land use looks like to you, whether it's a about food production and a diverse uh, food economy being at the centre of the change that you envision, or whether you think it is essential to spare off land into different activities so that we end up with forestry here, rewilding there, and then food production intensified into ever smaller parcels. Well, that depends on whether those par how um, effective and productive those parcels are going to be. We definitely have to return a lot of land to reforesting. Uh, that is definitely for sure, because otherwise we are creeping into our biodiversity, our standing biodiversity that is already quite diminished. And so, yes, we have to have some land devoted to uh, to food production. But again, if that land is primarily devoted to animal crops, then we're not being efficient with that. Why don't do we just go straight to those crops that give us the most protein and the most efficient use of protein? So yes, we have to have more land restored. Yes, we have to have richer soil. Yes, we have to see about us humans having better health and producing our food more efficiently, both from a soil perspective, as well as from a protein intake perspective. So if I think about that in a slightly different way, with soil uh, health, for example, and biodiversity restoration, sometimes the best ways of achieving that regeneration in biodiversity is actually with livestock integrated in those systems. And so if we take two different examples, we've got a, a, a Sitka spruce plantation, which is really intensive, doesn't really do an awful lot for biodiversity, can actually exacerbate flood management problems. And then on the other hand, we have an agroforestry system where there are livestock integrated, but you've also got trees in that system and that pasture managed regeneratively. And then you're drawing down carbon at the same time as restoring biodiversity and producing food. Is that acceptable in your view? It's better, but it's not the best. It is definitely better. Is it the best? No, it's not the best because it is still inefficiently using that grazing land. 
because the grazing land is ultimately there for purposes of protein for humans. Tim, you say that a paradigm shift is essential if we're to solve the twin crises in nature. But the fear of traditionally leftist solutions to global warming around taxation and legislative interventionism led to decades of climate change denial from politicians, particularly on the right. And it seems to me that in terms of renewable energy sources and transport, there's still a role for big business. But when it comes to agricultural land use and food production, there's a a genuine urgent need for power to shift back to smaller scale businesses and producers who are closer to the communities and to the soil and the watersheds they serve, no matter what it is that they're producing, whether that's meat or dairy or fruit or nuts or cereal. And I just, I wonder from your perspective, can we achieve that economic paradigm shift in time to solve this unfolding ecological emergency? Yeah, I mean, there were quite a lot of questions really in that. I mean, I think the way that I think about this is if you don't spend too long on thinking about whether you've got enough time because it takes up time and so the longer you spend worrying if you've got enough time it's all time that you're not actually doing anything we know the things that we need to do so we should get on and do them and i mean i i believe that in in a model in relation to 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 land and, and to agriculture and and rural communities generally that is about diversity i think diversity really matters because the land is diverse it has different characteristics it has different strengths and people in relation to that land are also diverse but the big paradigm shift that you were asking me about really is one that has to happen i think predominantly at an economic level i was in a seminar i think it was um the Bank of England that had organised it. And, and, and I listened to this economist talking about the role of agriculture in climate change quite seriously say at one point, listen, don't worry about agriculture. It's less than 3% of the GDP. And of course, you know, to an economist, less than 3% of the GDP matters not at all. Let's protect the financial sector because that's, you know, at the time, I don't know what it was, 10 or 11% of the GDP. But of course, it's nuts because food is the basis of our lives and our livelihoods and agriculture is, is the basis basis for future prosperity, but it's, but an economics that doesn't see that is out of its mind. And, and likewise, you know, it's, it's not seeing the impact of people in relation to that 3% of the GDP either. We did some, some interviews in the first phase of the Food Farming Countryside Commission. And the one that really stood out for me was an interview with uh, a worker in the food chain who could not afford to pay for food for himself and his family. He had to rely on the charity of food banks in order to pay because why? Because that food chain actually had become a source of extraction of the surplus of ordinary people working in the food chain to the extent that they could no longer even afford the food that they were working towards, which is just a travesty. And then in you know, to take the, the analogy about the statistics further, GDP of 3% may be all that agriculture is worth in the advanced economies, but actually it's 60% of the GDP of the poor, as has been pointed out. And, and that, you know, that's a huge amount of the rural livelihoods that belong to the land, that belong to our management of the land, that, that tell us and, and provide the resources for the agriculture that is going to uh, give us the food that ends up on our table and keeps us alive. And yet that's that's the tragedy. That's the paradigm shift I think we have to look at. We do not have an economics that is fit for purpose in managing the land, 
the agriculture or indeed the livelihoods of the people who work in that sector. And, and that, that is actually, I would argue, a kind of almost an obscenity in modern 21st century countries who think of themselves as advanced economies to denigrate the agricultural sector in that way, to fail to protect its workers and, and to not even think seriously about the issues like the integrity of the soil that Christiana was talking about. And it seems to me that this is why land use is different, because it is much more complex, because you're able to deliver these multiple outcomes and land needs to deliver these multiple outcomes. And one of the things that concerns me about the climate conversation when the drive is towards emissions reduction efficiency is that we somehow miss out these other elements, the need for diversity, the need for rural livelihoods that rely on this land, um, the need to restore biodiversity and soil health, which is important not least in terms of adaptation, because if we're looking for food security in the future, nutritional security, we need land that is going to be able to produce, even if there are very challenging climate impacts in the future. And so it becomes complicated, Christiana. Yeah, and, and it reminds me, Finlow, that, you know, I, I go back, way back to um, the Rio Convention in 1992, where in our collective ignorance and our puny little brains, we developed three conventions that are basically being pursued as silo issues, the climate, the biodiversity, and the desertification convention. All each of them with a whole infrastructure, international infrastructure, each of them with the corresponding national infrastructure and each of them pursuing goals that were conceived of as at that time as being independent of each other. Fortunately, and it's taken us 30 years, but fortunately, we're now beginning to understand that these things are not silos, that they're actually totally interdependent of each other. And we're beginning to see the convergence of all of these issues. I actually think that COVID-19 has been very, very helpful in helping us to converge cognitively, intellectually converge these issues and understand how interlinked all of this is. But unless we truly understand that, and unless we understand, let me just take, you know, fast forward from 1992 to 2015, 17 SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, that were developed, you know, with a lot, a lot of diplomatic uh, input from every country. But those 17 goals, if anybody can remember what the 17 are, are actually one goal. It is actually the betterment of humanity in its home on the planet. And they're all interlinked. And unless we understand that, unless we understand that damaging one damages the others and improving one will improve the others, unless we understand that and take advantage, take truly enlightened advantage of the fact that improving one improves the others, that is the only way we're actually going to make it on time. If we see the attendant beneficial echoing from one over to the other. You've taken my fears and you've made me feel optimistic with that last answer, Christiana. So looking forwards with optimism, I wonder how how should COP26 address these competing demands that we have for land use? Is it possible for this international diplomatic process, this haggling that goes on between nations, to address the urgency of climate mitigation while ensuring that that drive for emissions reduction doesn't somehow undermine other global priorities such as the restoration of biodiversity? 
and soil health, the need to improve land resilience in order to ensure nutritional security in every nation and for every human being. I think we're on the way to that. Um, I, well, first of all, let's uh, understand that there is no expectation of any big global agreement to come out of COP26. That's just not what is being expected. The big outcome of COP26 is the series of national, as we call them, nationally determined contributions. That is every country coming forward to say what they're going to do to contribute. And then, of course, the invitation to companies and financial sector and civil society to also contribute to the solution. So there is not a negotiated package such as there was in the Paris Agreement. So where we need to see this convergence um, and the focus on land use is actually in both the national commitments that are being made, so we need to see nations begin to understand that, but also very importantly, corporations and the financial sector. If they continue to build a wall between all of these things, we are not going to get forward. So in their commitments that they're making, the more that they integrate, and I see uh, I see the, 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 the growth of that integration every day, the better we're going to be. But let's not look for a negotiated package that is going to solve this at COP26. I know that there has been a feeling over the last you know, decade or so from developing countries that it's the rich nations that are in the driving seat here and that there is a danger that poor countries will bear the brunt of some of the decision making. Do you feel that poorer nations are now starting to be heard on a level playing field with richer nations? I go back to Tim's point. Tim made a very good point. He said, you know, the, in developing nations, 60% of the GDP is actually agriculture, 3% in, in industrialized countries. Let's understand that. Who's producing the food that the world needs, right? So let's just truly understand that none of us can survive without food, that most of the food is being produced in developing countries. Um, and it needs to be priced properly and it needs to be transported properly. And we need to cut down on waste. But basically, the global south is the farm for the global north. And who is going to survive without that farm? Tim, let's go back to story. Building on Christiana's call for relentless optimism, can you paint me a picture of what the future ought to look like for land use? Nine years from now, in 2030, if or when we have achieved the changes necessary to stay within 1.5 degrees, what does the new paradigm look like in terms of land use? I don't know that I can answer this story in the way, answer this question in the way that you want me to. I mean, I could point to sort of nice pictures. I mean, you know, William Morris in News from Nowhere does a pretty good job of pointing to this world. And there are other pictures, of course, that almost take the mickey out of that and say, well, you know, the world isn't a rural idyll and we can never get back to pretending that it is. So somewhere between those things, you know, I think the future lies. And, and in a way, rather than sort of saying, well, what is the promised land going to look like when we get there? I almost feel as though the most important thing is to look at the signposts and to read the signs that are pointing us, you know, towards a place which is more optimistic and away from a place actually, which has been quite destructive. And, and I do think that, that a core element in that destructiveness and, and the opposite direction is the one that we want to travel from this, is the way in which finance has operated in the agricultural sector. 
the way that it's become a kind of rent-seeking activity on the back of the fact that land itself has a value on which we can extract rents. And indeed, it has created a kind of, you know, a chain which is pumping money out of the rural land, pumping money out of the countryside, pumping money out of agriculture in pursuit of profits elsewhere in in the financial food chain rather than the agricultural food chain. And we desperately need not to follow that signpost anymore. We definitely need to to look in the other direction and point to the mechanisms that value land, that value work on the land, that value people who work on the land, that value the integrity of the soil, that create value out of the diversity in nature, that see the rural environment as a place where we can capture carbon, increase rural livelihoods and provide the food that allows us to survive as as human beings and to build those mechanisms, you know, almost if necessary from the bottom up, asking what it is that farmers need, what kinds of returns on their activities are actually consistent with healthy soils and regenerative lands and understanding that those returns and they're typical of the returns in nature of the order of a few percent at the very most, sometimes even a fraction of a percent return on on the effort and the money that goes into those activities. And that if you then attempt out of that, out of that, those slim margins that nature allows us in order to be resilient and regenerative, if you then attempt to pump productivity and profit out of those systems, that's the point at which you lose the story. That's the point actually at which, you know, the story you're looking at is a very dystopian one. It's one where the the soil no longer supports our children, the one where where the people who work on the land are no longer able to support themselves, where there is no sequestration of carbon, where we don't feed the people uh, who, who are the poorest on the planet, and where the system itself begins to desert us. And, and it isn't the happy picture that you wanted me to paint, but I think I'm saying you know, that there is a place where that resilient, regenerative nature, that strong, resilient farming, those rural communities that are diverse and vibrant and support livelihoods for ordinary people, that is all there for the taking, but only if we pay attention to the signposts at this point in time and follow the road that leads us there. Christiana, I just want to come back to you finally. Just to touch on your family history, your father established the Social Democratic Party of Costa Rica. He led a revolutionary army. He served three times as president, but before that he was a farmer. And you've said that we're all farmers of the future. Now, just through that three-line story, you've seen big change. You've experienced big change. You know it can happen. Surely that must make you or contribute to the optimism that you have. And so with that in mind, are we going to stay within 1.5 degrees? Let me ask a question against that question, Finlo. Can we afford not to? That's the question that we have to face. The fact is we can't afford, we cannot afford to go over 1.5 because the level of physical destruction, the level of economic destruction above all, and biodiversity destruction, but above all, the level of human misery and pain is such that we can't even conceive it from where we are right now. 
And that is something that we cannot be responsible. That we cannot, to use Tim's points of the signpost, we cannot put those signposts into the path and follow that path because then it will be our responsibility. So we don't have any other option. Don't ask me, you know, can we get to 1.5? The scientists have already said, yes, it's not my opinion. It's the scientists who have said, yes, you're barely, barely there. You can still squeeze in under the door. The question is, do we have the will, the determination, the stubbornness, the obstinate staying the course power to make it actually true? Because under our watch, Finlow, you and me and Tim, we are not going to let future generations live in a world that goes above 1.5. We just can't. And for that, we need a really positive story for land use. We need to really understand the contribution that land use can make. I'd like to thank my guests, Christiana Figueres and Professor Tim Jackson. If you've enjoyed listening, please subscribe to Farmgate so that you never miss an episode of Land Unlocked. And then tell your friends, like us, review us and share our links. Land Unlocked is produced by the UK's Food, Farming and Countryside Commission and the Farmgate podcast. You can find out more about us online at ffcc.co.uk and you can join the conversation by searching for the FFCC or Farmgate on Twitter. I've been Finlow Castain. Bye for now.